So my father became a pastor when I was sixth grade. So I've pretty much always been a preacher's kid. And um, I don't know if you've heard, but some preacher's kids, not all, we have a reputation. <laughs> we usually are not, there are exceptions, but we are usually not known for being well-behaved. <laughs> and some people, there are many reasons for that. Some people, not you, uh, but a lot of people will try to use the preacher's kids to get to the parents, right? We, and preacher's kids can, we can smell this a mile away, but this is not a great thing that give preacher's kids a good reality of, of their church. And so, uh, so a lot of times people will use children to get, as an inroad or if they want information, sometimes, man, we would get pumped for information about the church. And unfortunately, it, it's been pretty common in, in church world. And when I, was a, when I was a child, I grew up into adult and I thought that was all in my past, right? Being somebody else's tool for, for their own end, I I thought that was, that was over once I became an adult. But I remember when Melissa and I first moved here to Raleigh to help my parents, who, uh, who were the pastors here at the time, we were in our early 20s. And soon after arriving, a couple in the church who were no longer here, but they invited us over for dinner. It was the first time somebody had reached out to befriend us. And so we were excited to, to get to know people in the church. And we thought, man, these might be our first friends here. So, so when we showed up, they were very kind. They invited us in and they gave us a tour of the house. And then they sat us down and they presented us with a very expensive gift. And we thought, okay, that's, that's a little odd, but we were very appreciative. And, and so we went on to dinner and as the night went on and as there were more and more questions about my parents, I realized that the preacher's kids strategy was still in effect. I wasn't somebody to befriend, I was somebody to be used. I was actually invisible except for just a means to an end. So as the years went on, Melissa and I, we, we did make genuine friends that saw us for who we are. But in that moment, I remember, I remember feeling very, very invisible. That was just a tool or a pawn in somebody else's game. I think we all have a story like that, maybe somewhere where you feel invisible in your family, at school, where you're just used to get to somebody else, or maybe at work where you're just somebody's means to an end, right? But we've all felt that way before in some way. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we talk about this next name of God. And so if this is your first Sunday with us, we're actually in the middle of this series that we have called What's in a Name? And we are studying the names of God, because all, all throughout scripture, God was given specific names that reveal his character, his nature, even his promises to us. And so God has a lot of different names and each one of them reveals a different aspect of who he is. So we've been journeying through discovering some of the names of God so that we can know him better. And the reason that we wanna know him better is because those who know his name trust in him. For, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. In other words, if we can understand his names or his character and his essence, that's when we begin to trust him. And if we continue to seek to know him and his character and his personality, we know that he'll never forsake us. So the first week we talked about God's name, Jehovah Shalom, right? Jehovah Shalom. And we discovered how to walk in true peace and that peace isn't something that we achieve. It's actually somebody that we know because Jehovah Shalom doesn't just bring peace. He is actually peace himself. 
And then we talked about how to walk with God in such a way that his peace can become our peace. It can rub off on us. And then last week, we talked about Jehovah Jireh, which translates to God will provide. And we saw where Jesus said, look, if God's going to provide for the flower that doesn't even work, doesn't toil, how much, is he, how much more is he going to provide for you? Even when it looks like he's not going to come through. And we figured out that God's provision isn't limited by our perception. We discovered that just because we can't see a way out doesn't mean that God doesn't actually have one, that he's always working on our behalf. And so I've really loved this series. Are you guys feel like you're getting anything out of this? All right, good, because I'll just continue then. If you, if you miss any one of these, you can catch up on our YouTube uh, channel or uh, the Church Center app. But today, we continue in our journey to discover one of the names of God. And so in today's journey, we're going to actually backtrack a little bit, okay? If you remember last week, we met Abraham and his wife, Sarah. <clears throat> actually, at this point, their names are Abram and Sarai. But God later changes their name to Abraham and Sarah. And so that, and that's a whole nother message. But today we're going to refer to them by their God-given names of Abraham and Sarah. Okay. So God had asked them to leave their family, leave their land. And he promised them that if they would journey to a land that he would lead them to, that he would give them children and that he would make Abraham the father of many nations. But they didn't have any kids. And the promise of, of that child, if you remember, it seemed like this never-ending wait, right? But eventually Sarah got pregnant and they had their son Isaac. But years before that, they were really struggling. They were really struggling to be patient with God and his timing. And because of their impatience, they ended up in some serious family drama. You think your family drama is bad? This is going to make all of our family drama seem extremely boring, okay? So... Here we are, Abraham and Sarah, they're both pushing 100 years old, right? And still, no baby. So Sarah did what a lot of people do when they don't like God's timing. She came up with a scheme to help God out. See, it was the custom of the day to, for a servant to act as a surrogate when the wife couldn't conceive. But the problem was that this was actually contrary to God's original design for marriage that was earlier in Genesis 2. And so, in a move that was culturally understandable but actually ethically questionable, Sarah offers her Egyptian servant to Abraham, hoping to have a child through her. And so, Abraham says, okay. So, the servant's name is Hagar. She gave him to Abraham, and he slept with her, and she conceived. So it works, or so it seems. Hagar becomes pregnant, but when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarah. Now, now we're not sure why this is exactly. You know, Maybe Hagar like taunted her. Maybe he strutted, strutted her belly around in front of her, making sure to flaunt it in front of Sarah. We're, we're not sure what what happened here, but, but what happened next, I'm not going to be able to comment on. I'm just going to have to read it. And after I read it, uh, you're going to understand why I'm going to get in trouble if I begin to make commentary on it. So Sarah, this was Sarah's idea, right? Now, Abraham is not without fault because he allowed Sarah to circumvent God, you know, God's promise in the shortcut but let me just say, this was Sarah's idea. So, then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. 
This is your fault. Now, wait a minute. Didn't it? No, Micah, no comment. Can't, can't go there. She says, I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is your fault, Abraham. So Abraham responds. And before we look at this scripture of how Abraham responds, husbands, we have something to learn from Abraham. He responds, your slave's in your hands, Abraham's. Do with, it, do with her whatever you think is best. A little side note for us husbands, do not engage. He's called the father of our faith for a reason. Okay? So Abraham is jealous, or Sarah's jealous. Abraham doesn't want uh, to engage. And so what does she do? Then Sarah mistreats Hagar. So Hagar understandably flees from Sarah. And so she's not seen as a person here. She's seen as a tool. She's mistreated by Sarah, essentially abandoned by Abraham, the very people that should be responsible for her well-being. And she didn't ask for any of this, right? She's a servant. She didn't have any say in this whole thing. And now she's alone, pregnant, desperate. And I'm sure she felt like she was just invisible, unseen, like nobody cares about me. I'm just a board piece in somebody else's game, right? You ever felt like that? I have many times, and, and maybe you have too, where, where you're in a situation and you get that sensation that you're just there to serve somebody else's purpose, right? That they're using you, that you're not really seen for who you are or who you could be, <clears throat> that you could walk into a room and look, nobody would even notice, or that you could share your thoughts and your feelings and nobody's listening, nobody cares. It's that fear that I'm not important, I'm not valued, I'm not seen. This is how Hagar feels. So she runs away, which is a natural response in a situation like that, right? Because when we feel like we don't matter, we're less likely to engage with the world around us. We actually hold back our gifts and our talents, our contributions, our friendship. Because we think, like, what's the point? Like, who's even going to notice? I'm not seen. I'm just somebody's tool. And we feel invisible. When we feel like we don't matter. <clears throat> See, running away feels like the only option. But here's the thing. And, and this is what I have discovered. And, and I, think it's the, I think it's true for all of us that when you feel taken advantage of, when we feel invisible, that running away doesn't actually solve the problem of invisibility. And this is what we usually do, right? We run away relationally, we run away emotionally, sometimes even physically. And let me just insert this. I'm not talking about abuse, okay? If you're being abused, you need to remove yourself from that equation, all right? But outside of, outside, outside of abuse, running away doesn't solve the problem of invisibility. It just changes your scenery. It just changes your scenery. You see, distancing myself from people in my church as a teenager, it didn't actually solve the problem. It was unhealthy. I had moved, but the problem still existed. But we all have felt overlooked, underappreciated, maybe at work where you're passed over for a promotion. Maybe it's at home where you f you're feeling like your spouse or your kids take you for granted. Or, you're, or you're, maybe you're a student and you don't feel like your parents really see you, really value you, or maybe 
It could even be here at church where you walk in and out each Sunday just wondering, would anybody miss me if I'm gone? Look, everybody goes through this in some area of their lives. And, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, what do we do, what do I do when I feel like I'm invisible? Where do we turn when it seems like nobody sees us? What is our response when we feel used? How do we position ourselves to where we don't get, taken, get advantage, taken advantage of, but then also how do we not wall up? Well, there, there's good news is there is a way out of this cycle where you can, you can be seen and valued and loved. And that is by understanding one of the other names of God. So back to our story, here's Hagar. She's mistreated, used, marginalized, pushed out all alone in the desert, but not actually not alone because the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. So she's out in the desert and here he is again, the angel of the Lord. Now remember from our last two weeks, when we see this name, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's actually the pre-incarnate Jesus because Jesus existed as a being before he was born in Bethlehem. And before Bethlehem, when he showed up, he was actually called the angel of the Lord. And so Jesus says to her, she says, Hagar, slave of Sarah. Now let me stop just and address this for a second. In the Bible, slavery is not uh, racial slavery as we understand it from our horrible history. And there are a lot of people that will say the Bible condones slavery. I even heard one guy say, like, it's a handbook for slavery. And people who say things like this show their ignorance of the Bible I mean, with all love and respect. The Bible uses the word slave, servant, or attendant all interchangeably, okay? Slavery in biblical times, it was, it was either about conquest or economics. It wasn't about race. And so people would sell themselves into servanthood to, to pay a debt for a period of time, or if their debt was enough, sometimes for, they would sell themselves for life. <clears throat> but it was economic. And this is probably the situation with Hagar because we know that she was Egyptian, and we know that Abraham and Sarah spent a time in Egypt earlier before this account. So this is probably where Hagar had sold herself into servanthood for at least, or at least a period of time. Um, and so the angel of the Lord uh, addresses her, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I love it how God asks questions even though he knows the answer, right? He says, she says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, uh, and then the angel of the Lord told her, I want you to go back to your mistress and submit to her. And I'm sure she thought, well, hey, oh, time out. Go back and submit to her. Really, the same woman that dismissed me as expendable? That I feel used me and disregarded me? That same Sarah? Seriously? But I think there was something that she may not have considered. Could it have been that God has hinting that had she dealt with this differently, had she not despised Sarah and whatever that entailed, things might have turned out a little bit differently. Could it be that God is suggesting to her that in her reaction to all of this, that some of this she may have brought on herself? See, we got to be careful to how we react to our circumstances, even when they're not fair. Because what we say or what we do, you can act, we can actually make things worse, right? And that seems to be the case with Hagar because she was in a bad situation as it was. And then she made it worse. And so the angel of the Lord tells her, go back and submit yourself. And so Hagar 
she needed to learn to trust God and to obey him even when saying yes doesn't seem reasonable at all. Because regardless of our circumstances, look, I'm never a victim of my circumstance. Regardless of what happens to you, regardless of what we're going through, we are never victims of our circumstances. And the truth, because the truth is, and we learned this in previous weeks, because if we are surrendered to him and if we trust in him, God is always working in the background. And he can bring blessings out of the worst of situations. He never wants us to run from our problems. He wants us to face them with his help. And so God was working here in her background the whole time. He hadn't forgotten her, even though it looked like she was powerless in the situation. God saw where she was and had not abandoned her. And we know this because the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. You see, God met Hagar in her place of despair. God had told Abraham that, that he would make him the father of many nations, plural. See, he had a plan for Hagar all along. So he got her back to Abraham and Sarah, but, but he's not done. And he continues, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael. And watch this. Do you know what this name Ishmael actually means? It means God hears. In other words, I have not forgotten you, Hagar. You're not invisible. I'm still with you in your distress, in your circumstances. I see you. For the Lord has heard of your misery. You see, God is near the brokenhearted. God's not far away in your problems, in my problems, in our misery. He's actually with us. He sees us. And he hears their cries. In fact, Psalm 34 says it this way, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So no matter what you're going through, he's close. Whether you're, whether you're a single parent, you're not alone. Whether you've been abandoned by people that you loved and you thought that they loved you, you're not alone. He is close. And so now she's figured out by this time that this is not just any normal guy talking to her. She realizes that she has not been talking to a man, but with God himself, and that his presence gave her hope and assurance that she'd be all right. And as she comes to this realization, the same realization that I pray we all come to, I'm sure she felt this deep sense of peace, as if all the burdens had been lifted from her shoulders. And I want to encourage you as well that God is with you. And not just sometimes, not just at church, not just when things are going well. He's with you in your darkest of times, whenever everything seems lost. He's there when we feel discouraged. He's there when we feel overwhelmed. And he can bring you strength, me strength, when we're struggling. And Hagar realizes this at this point. And so she gave a name to the Lord who spoke to her. She figures it out as God. And she says, you are the God who sees me. I love that. See, she understood at this point, she wasn't just some tool. She wasn't just a piece on somebody else's board game. She wasn't just a pawn. She was seen by the one that really mattered. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me, translated Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees me. And this is your God. 
this is my God, the God that sees us. This is one of the names that describes this amazing characteristic of God that he sees us even when we feel invisible or useless. God says otherwise. And that's why the well was called Be Lahai Roy. And the, the, this Hebrew word, it actually, it means God sees me. Now let's pause for just a second. So in her lowest moment, feeling utterly invisible, Hagar discovers that she has been seen by God. And that changes absolutely everything for her. And it could change everything for you as well. It could change everything for me. If we could just see God like Hagar saw him, as one who really sees you. And, th and that's more than just a comforting thought. It's, it's an actual game-changing reality because if God could see Hagar in her desperation, in her invisibility, what if, what if he sees you? And this brings us to a realization or, or a conclusion that if we can incorporate into our mindset, our heart, our paradigm of life, it could actually change everything. And that is in a world where you feel invisible, overlooked, used even, in a place where you feel invisible, you've got to understand you're never out of the sight of Jehovah El Roy, the God that sees you in the midst of all your issues even if some of it's self-imposed. In the middle of all the noise, it's easy to, to think that we're just one more face in the crowd, easily overlooked, forgotten, easily invisible. But here's the thing. He sees you as you. Not just like you're somebody in the crowd, right? Not as a statistic, not as a demographic, not based upon your race or your politics or even your deeds. He sees you as unique irreplaceable. You're not just another face. You're the face that God loves, that he cherishes, and that he sees. And that's why this statement is so crucial, because when you grasp that you're never out of sight of Jehovah El Roy, it changes how you see yourself. It changes how we interact with the world around us when we understand that. It gives us the confidence to step out and to take risks and to be who we were created to be. Because we know whatever comes along, I'm seen and I'm loved by the God of the universe. Understanding God as Jehovah El Roy, it's not just a comforting thought, it's life changing. Watch this, watch what the psalmist writes. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me, you see me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Talk about being seen. This is God knowing you inside and out and understanding your thoughts and your movements and your very essence. And this is a part of a bigger narrative that tells us that God is intimately involved in your life. He's not just some distant observer. He's actually an active participant, and he wants us to understand him for who he is as Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees you. And I understand that the idea of being seen by God all the time, well, that could be a little bit intimidating, right? And, I, and look, I get it. The idea of an all-seeing God can sound a little bit like a spiritual Orwellian like, uh, surveillance state or something, right? 
But the thing is, is God's not watching you to catch you do something wrong. He's watching you because he loves you. And if we've given our lives to him, if we have submitted our lives to him, he sees us out of love, not judgment. And so today, if you feel that pull, if you feel God saying, hey, I see you and I love you. Look, regardless of where you are in life, regardless of what you've done, he sees you and he invites you into a relationship with him. But in order to have that relationship with him and spend eternity with him, we've got to give our lives to him. And he's, because he said nobody comes to the Father God except through giving their lives to him, Jesus. And so today, if you want to do that directly after the service, there are going to be people at the next steps table, the same table that other people are taking their prayer requests to. For those of you who are online, you can message us in the, uh, at, at our website. But all you have to do is let them know you want to make that, make that decision to follow Jesus, and they'll walk you through the steps. Because God sees you out of love, not out of judgment. Those out of relationship with him will be judged, but that's not what he wants for any of us. He wants that relationship with us where he sees us and where we allow him to be with us. So if you follow him, what if you could become aware that he's with you, that he always sees you, that he's always aware of you, not just as a people, but as an individual, as a person? And what if we could trust him, that he's always working in our lives, even when we can't see him, he sees us? What if we were to actively look for moments where you are seen by God? I'm talking about those little, those little winks from heaven, those little God winks, maybe a timely phone call from a friend or finding an unexpected solution to a problem that maybe you've been wrestling with. You know, what, whatever it is, what if, what if we kept track? Somebody this last week, they told me that whenever they're feeling lost or discouraged or unseen, they go back and they look at a list that they've maintained of every time God came through, big things, small things, where God came through, where God wasn't absent or aloof, even when it felt like it. So here's my challenge for us this week. What if we look for those times that he sees us? Just like that car that you started to look at buying and then suddenly you see them everywhere. What if you begin to look for the moments that you are seen by God. And when you see them, you just took a minute each time just to write them down. What if we kept a seen by God journal, right? Now, I know some of you, when I use the word journal, you're like, Micah, I'm not the journaling type of person. Uh, that's okay. I'm not talking about a novel, okay? I'm just talking about a few lines just to capture the moment that God came through. It could be a note on your phone or a notebook by your bed, whatever it is. For me, in my daily devotional time, uh, part of it is I write three things that I'm grateful for. And, and so often, those, these are the things that pop up for me, just those little times when I recognize he sees me and I'm grateful. He was with me all along. And here's the thing. When you start looking for these moments, you'll start finding them, that he is there and he does see you. And that's when we find the power of Jehovah El Roy in our life. Imagine going through your week with just this heightened sense of God seeing you. Imagine the peace and the confidence and the joy that comes from knowing you're not just stumbling through life haphazard. You're being watched over. You're being seen by Jehovah El Roy. Waking up each morning, not with a sense of dread, but anticipation for the day. 
Like, where's God going to show up today? Because I know he sees me. I know he's with me. And I know he's for me. I mean, like, think about that for a minute. You don't have to prove your worth to anybody. You're already invaluable in the eyes of the one who matters most and watches you and sees you. This is the life that God wants for us, a life of peace and joy and deep-rooted confidence that comes from, from knowing that we are seen by Jehovah El Roy. Will you stand with me?